Well, like many books of history, the Bible, if it is anything, it is a book that records history. The Bible is, of course, much more than that. But if you just take a cursory read of the Bible, what you see all throughout its pages are the names of historical figures that you find elsewhere in history books written all throughout the ages. Of course, the Bible's primary history deals with the people of Israel. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that the Bible records history as it happened on this earth. You see what happened with the people of Israel. You see how the the kingdom of Israel was split into northern and southern. You see how the nation of Assyria, led by Sennacherib, invaded the northern kingdom in 722 and hauled them off into exile. And then you also see how in 586 BC, the nation of Babylon, in, in, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, invaded the southern kingdom of Judah, destroying the temple that Solomon had built and carrying those people off into exile. It matches exactly with the history that we see has happened. Of course, what the Bible tells us that empirical observation does not is that behind the scenes, God was working. That all of these events in history that happen are not just bare events. They're happening as God has working out his history. Well, the book of Malachi is a prophecy, a prophecy that was written about 400 years before the birth of Christ. Malachi was a prophet sent to the people of Israel who had been sent back to Israel by a Persian king. That king's name was Cyrus. We read about him in history. God had actually prophesied through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Cyrus ever came on the scene that a man named Cyrus would in fact send back the people to rebuild the temple. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, it was through the work of another Persian king named Darius, who we also read about in history, who seemingly miraculously provided all of the the protection and provisions and everything that the people of Israel needed to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem, which they did. They rebuilt it, and history will show us. They rebuilt it around 520 B.C. For about 60 years, the people who now had returned and had this glorious new temple began to again fall away into disobedience. And it was then that the Lord sent the prophet Malachi. Malachi, the name simply means my messenger. God sent Malachi to these people who had fallen away from God again as his messenger. And what did Malachi say? Well, last week we looked at the beginning part of Malachi's message. What he said, what God said through Malachi, was that 
not only had the people fallen away, not only had they begun to devalue the worship of this God who had rescued them and sent them back and miraculously provided for them, but the priests themselves, who were to be the guardians of the temple and and to offer sacrifices and to teach the people of Israel what God commanded and what he desired, the priests had gone astray and began to devalue worship. And because of all of this, the people had begun to devalue one another. And so God sent Malachi. And we conclude Malachi's message this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up. We're going to be looking at Malachi, the second half. It's a relatively short passage this morning. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 And we're going to go to the end, which is Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possessions... And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children 
and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. <clears throat> Malachi 3.6, where we begin this morning, says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now thus far, if you've read through the whole of this prophecy of Malachi, you can see that if anyone deserves to be utterly consumed in judgment, it's the nation of Israel. So far, everything that Malachi has spoken to them through, or that God has spoken to them through Malachi, has been a form of disputation. That God is coming to his people and he's saying, you have done this. And the people are replying to God saying, how have we done that? How have we disrespected you? What are you talking about? And God then replies how they have disobeyed him, how they have disrespected him, how they are speaking against him. Israel is a sinful people. And yet, you read here in Malachi 3.6 that they are not consumed. Why are they not? Because they are in and of themselves righteous. God does not say, well, because you've obeyed me so well, you are not going to be consumed in my judgment. Notice that the only reason God gives that they are not consumed in the judgment is because the Lord does not change. God, by nature, is unchangeable. God is what we call immutable. One scholar writes this, Immutability means that being perfect, God cannot and does not change. In order to change, a moral being must change in either of two ways. Either he, he, either he must change for the better, or he must change for the worse. God cannot get better, because that would mean that he was less than perfect earlier, in which case he would not have been God. But God cannot get worse either because in that case he would become imperfect, which he cannot be. God is and must remain perfect in all his attributes. Now we read that and we compare it to our own experience and we know that if anything is true of us and of our world is that we ourselves and this world is full of change. We are constantly changing. From minute to minute, we are changing. Cells are dying and being replaced with other cells. Change is something that I experienced yesterday. Michelle and I took the kids out to a field, a park, and we brought the football. And I started throwing and playing uh, catch with my two older boys, and Michelle joined in after a while. And I was instantly taken back as we were passing the football, so vividly in my mind, to when I was 14 and 15 years old. And I was out on a field, Archbishop Spalding football field, across from Papa John's farm, running around like a deer, <laughs> unafraid of injury, and uh, 
feeling like I had endless energy with my 44 and 45 year old father throwing passes to me. And although my mind instantly went back to that day and I could see it vividly as though it had happened yesterday, my body told me that it happened a long time ago. <laughs> God, or the Bible says that God is unchangeable and that the only reason that the people of Israel do not perish in the judgment is because in a world of constant change, there is one constant, and that is God himself. Notice here in, in Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 to 15, right after verse 6, God's immutability or his faithfulness is contrasted with Israel's mutability, with their faithlessness. Look at all of the things that he goes, this litany of things that Israel does from the days of your fathers. You have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Israel was a poster child of change. They were constantly flip-flopping. One day proclaiming to follow God and wholeheartedly serve him and the next day falling into idolatry. You only have to go back to when uh, Moses went up on the mountain and received the Ten Commandments. Israel had just said they were going to follow and obey God and right away they grow tired of him being gone and they produce a gold idol, a calf. You see here in this section that this kind of wavering, this kind of falling away was really epitomized by Israel's practice of tithing. The tithe, that word tithe just means tenth. And God's law demanded that a tenth of everything that God had given to Israel was to be given back to him. It was to be given to the Levites who in turn would then give a tenth of that to the priests. One scholar says this, the tithes and offerings were a way in which the people of Israel provided financial support for the temple, the priest, and the Levites, the services of the temple, and the poor and the needy in the community. And robbing the temple was robbing the poor and the needy and was also robbing, therefore, God. And that's what you see God saying in here. Israel, in essence, by the way they were living, by hoarding everything that they had and not giving anything to God, they had forgotten that everything that they had was a gift from God. What about you this morning? As you sit out here, enjoying this weather, enjoying the fact that you're breathing, that you're alive, at, that you can hear what I say, that you in your brain can make sense of what I'm saying. All of these things are things that you have been given as a gracious gift. You didn't make yourself this way. You haven't sustained yourself in this way. Everything you have is a gift from God. But how do you live? Do you live every day as though everything that you have is a gift from God? Or do you live every day as though everything that you have is somehow just yours by something that you've done? Well, God gives a little test, a little diagnostic in here to see whether or not you think of things as yours or whether you think of them as God's. 
And that is how you give to God. How you give of the money that you have to God. How do you spend your money? Take a look at it. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How you spend your money is kind of an easy way to see where your heart is. And you can just analyze it this morning if if you've been putting too much trust in your money. If you've been putting your security in your money, if you've been withholding your money for yourself and things that you want to do rather than giving it to the things that God is doing around the world and in the church, then God gives you the same challenge this morning that he gave to Israel in those days. Look at what God says. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and put me to the test. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now normally, you don't want to put God to the test. Jesus even says, it's written in Deuteronomy, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Normally, when you put God to the test, it is a sign of unbelief. It is a sign that you're doubting God. God says, something in his word, and you say, I'm not sure I believe that. I have to put God to the test. It's a sign of unbelief to put him to the test. But here, God is commanding us to put him to the test. And therefore, to not put him to the test, God is saying, give me your first fruits. Give me your tithe. Put me to the test. See if I don't take care of you and pour out blessings that you don't even expect. And to not put him to the test when he says to put him to the test, that is unbelief. That is a sign of doubting him. (laughs) Because you're saying, no, I, I need to hoard everything I have and not give to him because I don't believe what he's saying. The opposite of those who give to God generously are those with the kind of attitude in Malachi 3.14. They say, it's vain to serve God. What profit is it to serve God? And of course, your money is just a diagnostic. But God has given you everything in your life to steward as a gift to give back to him. Money's one small section of it, but every day you ought to be thinking, how do I use this gift or this gift or this gift first and foremost to serve God before I serve myself? And so far, all the way through Malachi 3.15, The prophecy has been entirely negative. God has to send Malachi to an unbelieving, disobedient people. And so far, everything that God has said has been replied by the people with some negative, unbelieving word. But beginning in Malachi 3.16, the tide turns. And for the first time, In the entire prophecy, there is a human response that is positive to God. Notice here in verses 16 to 18, 
the people hear what Malachi is saying, and there's a group, we might call them a remnant, that speak to one another, that challenge one another, and they end up fearing the Lord and esteeming his name. And notice here that their names are written down in a book. It's interesting, though, that their names are not written down in a book of righteous deeds that they have performed. The book is a book of remembrance, but not a remembrance of righteous deeds that they have performed. It is simply a book of remembrance of these people that feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And we find this idea of a book, a book that God has written and recorded names all throughout the Bible. Daniel chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name is found in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Philippians, Paul says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. And in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, John is describing this beautiful temple. The temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The gates will never be shut by day, there will be no more night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I ask you this morning, Christian, do you ever forget God? As you live your life, do you wake up in the morning, have your breakfast, listen to your news, go off to work, do your job, come home, have dinner, go to bed, and forget that God exists? Do you sometimes forget to pray to him? Do you sometimes forget to praise him? Do you sometimes forget to thank him for who he is and what he's done for you? I can tell you that has happened to me more times than I can count. Thank God how wonderful it is that God will never, ever forget you. If your name is written in his book of remembrance, then it is there from eternity past into all eternity future. Because as you see here in Malachi, you, Christian, are God's treasured possession. Malachi 3.17, they shall be mine, 
in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. That mine in Hebrew is emphatic. They are mine. And it's good to know because for the rest of the the prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, 1 through 6, the Lord talks about this day that is coming, the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, if you just go back, you see that this day is kind of spoken about twice in Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, just before where we began today, it says that one day two people are going to arrive on the scene in human history. One person is going to be, God says, my messenger. And then he says there's another person that's going to come who is the Lord himself. And if you just look at this fourth chapter, Malachi chapter 4, 1 through 6, talking about this great and awesome day of the Lord, you see that there are two people that are arriving on the scene one day in human history. One is Elijah the prophet, and two is the Lord himself. Notice what it says here in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then the prophecy ends. Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet. He was the last to come and speak in God's name to the people of Israel. Those were his final words. God's final words to the people of Israel is that there is a day coming, a great and awesome day of the Lord, and you will know that that day has arrived when Elijah the prophet comes and turns hearts in repentance. After Malachi ends, and after he died, the nation of Israel went on. And for hundreds of years, great and awesome things happened in human history. Some of them may have been things that someone from the outside may have said, this has got to be the great and awesome day of the Lord. The Parthenon was built in Athens. The statue of Zeus was completed. The lighthouse in Alexandria, the Colossus of Rhodes, all of them ancient wonders of the world, built and completed during those years. A great famine hit Rome. The Peloponnesian War was fought between Athens and Sparta. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle were all born and taught in and around the cities of Greece. The aqueduct, the crossbow invented. A boy named Alexander, when he was 13 years old, was tutored personally by Aristotle and ended up being known as the Great as he conquered 
Egypt and Syria and Babylon and Persia and spread Greek culture all over the world at that time. The Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. We know it as the Septuagint. Hannibal crossed the Alps and invaded Italy. Antiochus Epiphanes became ruler of Judea, outlawing Judaism and desecrating the temple. And then a revolt led by Judas Maccabeus ended up with the dedication of the temple again and the founding of what we know today as Hanukkah. A military leader named Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon, invaded Rome itself, started a civil war and was eventually assassinated on the Ides of March, 44 BC. King Herod became king of Judea. Caesar Augustus became the first emperor of the newly begun Roman Empire. And in all those years, God was silently working behind the scenes, working out history to his ends. And many historically monumental, many great and awesome days occurred. But the great and awesome day of the Lord had not yet arrived. Would it ever happen? Perhaps some thought it wouldn't. As Malachi's prophecy faded into the background, in the midst of all of the history that was going on around, 400 years had come and gone. And then one day, an obscure man, a priest, living in the armpit of the Roman Empire, Judea. Someone that no one on earth cared about was visited by an angel named Gabriel. And this angel said that this man's wife who had been barren was going to bear a son. He said that her son was going to be great before the Lord. He was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And what he said about this boy is this. 400 years after Malachi said it, he said, your son is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Your son is going to go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. 400 years after Malachi prophesied, the messenger had finally arrived. His father Zechariah rejoiced knowing what this meant and he said, you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. You see, God promised that two would come He said the messenger of the Lord would come and the Lord himself would come. And in the same town, not too far away, an angel visited an even more obscure person, a virgin by the name of Mary. He said that she was going to bear a son. He said that her son would be the product of the Holy Spirit 
that the power of the Most High would overshadow her, and the son to be born would not be the messenger of the Lord, but would be the Lord God himself. And it was Jesus himself who said of John the Baptist, he is the Elijah who is to come. And it was Jesus himself who said of himself, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. And John the Baptist said of Jesus, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The one coming after him, he said, is bringing one baptism with two results. Jesus was bringing a baptism that was going to result for some in the baptism of the Holy Spirit and for others, a baptism of fire and judgment. And John the Baptist said that Jesus was going to accomplish two things. He was going to gather his wheat into the barn and he was going to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Exactly as Malachi had prophesied that the day of the Lord would bring 400 years earlier. The book of Malachi ends with ominous words, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Well, on Friday, we remembered that on the cross, Jesus faced the great and awesome day of the Lord. He faced God's wrath on the cross, bearing the utter destruction for those in the book of remembrance. And this morning, we remember that three days later, Jesus emerged from the grave never to die again. Friends, Jesus is risen. He is risen in history. As much as all of these other events in scripture have come to pass in history. And he has been baptizing his people with the Holy Spirit for 2,000 years. That's why you're here this morning. And during the last 2,000 years, there have been many great and awesome days. Many events of historical significance have come and gone. We've witnessed some of them in our own lifetime. And we may start to wonder Will God keep his promise for the great and awesome day of the Lord? Well, friends, the God who kept his promise to Israel in Malachi's day is the unchanging one. And just as he kept his promise then, he will keep his promise again. Just as he baptized with the Holy Spirit, so he will baptize with fire. Paul says, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, suddenly destruction will come upon them and they will not escape. As sure as I am talking to you this morning, one day the sky is going to be torn asunder. The clouds are going to part, and our risen and exalted Lord is going to return. 
For some, it will be a day of judgment. Malachi says that for others, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out leaping like calves from the stall. The Apostle Paul, who says that the day of the Lord will be like labor pain, sudden judgment, tells us of the same day. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so I encourage you this morning, as we sit here in a beautiful field in a broken world, we are reminded that God will not change and that he will fulfill his promise no matter how many years pass before promise and fulfillment, just like he kept the promise to the prophet Malachi. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful this morning that we are reminded that just as Christ rose from the grave, that just as his tomb is empty, so we who are the harvest to come will rise as well, along with our brothers and sisters who have gone before. Lord, we are so grateful that we have a sure promise because you are unchanging. Remind us of that as we head into this week and the rest of this year. As this world is full of changes, remind us of the unchangeable promises of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.